welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I'm your host, Lauren Burke. And I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And this week, we are talking about the best books we read in 2022, as well as the best books that you read in 2022, because as per usual... The Bonnets listeners have submitted hundreds of amazing recommendations. You guys read a ton, by the way. I felt felt shamed. (laughs) (laughs) We'll also be talking to the authors responsible for some of those books and hearing from some publishers and booksellers about their favorite reads of 2022. So settle in for an action-packed episode. Uh, Probably two episodes. It's so action-packed. So um, maybe now is the time to pause and grab a pen and paper because we're going to be covering quite a bit. And there will be a pop quiz at the end. That yes. there actually isn't, yes. but it's just like a turn of phrase, I guess. <laughs> you want to manage you their would, expectations. You would give someone a pop quiz over this, Professor Hannah. You would. I would. <laughs> so let's go ahead and dive right and with our first recommendation. Hannah, do you want to tell us something you read this year that you loved that was not Silas Marner? How did you know it would be Silas Marner? I right, hear me out. Here's can I gripe for a second? Can I share mm-hmm. a gripe? I don't feel like you all appreciated Silas Marner enough. <laughs> That's my gripe of 2022 for sure. No one loves it more than you. Not even George Eliot. And I imagine no. she really liked it. <laughs> uh, I I peaked really early this year, I have to admit. So I actually read my best book like in the spring. And in March, mm. I was like, this could be my best book. And it was. So I read oh, wow. um, Marion Engel for the first time. Have you read any Marion Engel? I have not. She's Canadian. Okay. Uh, Bear was published in 1976. So it's more contemporary than we usually cover on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, the main character is an archivist who is sent to like this remote building of dubious historical interest to like see what she can find and like is there anything of value. And cool. so in that sense, I think it's really Bonnet's adjacent. And I don't want to say like a lot about it, but she does in the book. That's wild. <laughs> <laughs> and I spent, I... I spent most of the book being like, no, they won't. <laughs> and yeah, and then like I kept going, like I went to our work Christmas party from last year it was in March, and it was in my bag. And drunk Hannah was just like, "Let me just read tea," <laughs> and so I did like a reading at the table. <laughs> oh my god! I what's funny is that like you had me sold earlier. Do you know mm. as one of my many jobs, because I've had so many. Um, I used to be like a media archivist and I would like one of the one of my jobs was like they found this like old film studio that was like full of like just reels and reels of film. And I was just digitizing a bunch of it. Mm. And it was like old Miss USA pageants from like the 80s. It was um, The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. It was just like random bits of media that were owned by various studios. Um, But then there was all this newsreel footage. And what was wild was that there was a bunch of newsreel from a pandemic 
that happened oh. I, many years ago. And I was seeing a bunch of people in like masks and mm. like people being brought out of their homes on stretchers. It was all like really daunting. And I just remember going, wow, glad I don't live in those times. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think you'd really like this book. I'm interested I, I, to know if anyone else has read it. Oh, I am uh, intrigued. <laughs> intrigued. <laughs> so the book that I'm going to recommend is also very bonnety. Um, it comes from an independent publisher called Clash Books. And their mission statement is just, you know, it's very up my street. I'll, I'll read it really quickly. So Clash Books is where high and low art meet to make something fresh, new and exciting. I love a, I love a meeting of high and low art. That's very much my thing. Um, we publish literary fiction, nonfiction, poetry, horror, sci-fi, and genre-free fiction. So, you know, I think they might be interested in our George Eliot and the Real Housewives of Coventry book. I think uh, yeah, I that think might be up so. their alley. Yeah. yeah. The latest book I purchased from them was Tragedy Queens, stories inspired by Lana Del Rey and Sylvia Plath. Um, I haven't finished it yet, <laughs> but I think that maybe our audience might be interested in this one. Also, I am really, really looking forward to a Wuthering Heights retelling that they're publishing next year. And I believe it's from Kathy's perspective. So yes, this is the book I need. Um, so yeah, definitely. That was just me confusing. I was like, whose perspective is Wuthering Heights from? And then I was like, two... I, f I remembered, guys. Don't worry. Okay. Okay. Good. I figured it out. <laughs> Listen, I want to get the truth. I want to get Kathy's truth. I want to get all sides. I would actually like a roundtable version of Wuthering Heights, where mm -hmm. everyone tells their side. Yeah. And you, the Real Housewives of Wuthering Heights. I mean, <laughs> definitely ready to write that. Yes, a, a reunion <laughs> special. Yeah. So, the book that I'm going to recommend is from Clash, and I did read it earlier this year, and it is called The Bee and the Fly, The Improbable Correspondence of Louisa May Alcott and Emily Dickinson. And I think the title pretty much tells you all that you need to know about this book, but um, one of the things that I found especially interesting was that it was actually written by two lifelong friends, and like one in the voice of Louisa, and the other in the voice of Emily. And we do have them both on the show today to talk a little bit about how the book came about and the reasons why they think Emily and Louisa really did know about each other. Lorraine Tosiello, who wrote for Louisa, is a physician and writer that lives in New York City. Her first novel, Only Gossip Prospers, a novel of Louisa May Alcott in New York, is also something that the Bonnet should definitely check out. And Jane Cavallina, who wrote for Emily, has had a long career in publishing, first as a senior editor at William Morrow, Crown and Pocket Books, and now as a copy editor. She's also the co-author of Growing Up Catholic, which was on the New York Times bestseller list for 40 weeks, people. It came together almost in a flash to me, the thought of this book, the, the theme of this book, when I visited the homestead, which is Emily Dickinson's home, and Louisa May Alcott's orchard house on the same weekend, back-to-back -back days. And I heard 
names and events and things that were happening to these women in Massachusetts, heard the names, you know, of course you heard Thoreau and you heard Emerson and you heard Thomas Wentworth Higginson. And then I said, I think these two women could have known each other. I felt it when I walked into Orchard House. So kind of the way the introduction to the book starts where the woman finds these letters and she says, oh, wait a minute, but these two didn't know each other, but I feel that they did. And when she goes into their home, she realizes that, yes, she's able to tell this story because they were very close. She thought these two women spiritually. So I came back and I'm a real Louisa May Alcott person and I've read Little Women like 20, 20 times. And I said, I can write, I can write letters from Louisa May Alcott, but I really cannot be Emily Dickinson. And then I came along <laughs> to high school together okay. in the, another century, right? Mm -hmm. We've known each other since we were freshmen in high school, which was 1968. My goodness. Yep. Yep. And um, for many years, there was no correspondence or interchange with any of us from our high school class, which was very small. We were only about 150 of us. And then they had a 40th anniversary reunion and somebody made a, a Excel file with everybody's names and phone numbers and somehow they began a, and a Facebook page. So there began to be little connections. So Lori called me one day and said, you're in New Jersey, I'm in New Jersey come to the beach. We haven't seen each other in like 40 years. So I did. And it was so marvelous. It was like we had stepped off the school bus like yesterday. Nothing had, you know, we were just instantaneously back to being friends the way we were at the time. And Lori asked me who my favorite poet was. And silly me, <laughs> I told her the truth. And I said, Emily Dickinson. And it was like, Oh, have have I got a project for you? <laughs> it was just amazing. I mean, out of all the people I could have picked, Emily really is at the top. She's fighting for first place with Walt women. But I do have a, my well-thumbed complete poems with little yellowed hairs at the top, meaning one thing at the side, meaning another thing. I love Emily Dickinson's poems and I was very familiar with them and and I felt with her through the poems since there's no other real way to know her. We found so many correlates between these women, some which were obvious, like I already mentioned, Thomas Wentworth Higginson. But, you know, one of the biggest questions, the literary, you know, thriller question is, why did Emily Dickinson write to Thomas Wentworth Higginson? So we come up with a perfectly plausible reason. And that's because Louisa May Alcott, who had already published in the Atlantic, and she had published uh, a small book of fables and had published a poem here or there, her family knew him. And she was sort of, you know, like awestruck by him. And whenever he would compliment her, she would feel very much like she could be an author because Thomas Wentworth Higginson had said something good about something she had written. And so we say, 
well, hey, Leah, listen, I know this guy and he'll be very nice to you. So why don't you write to him? We have Louisa say that to Emily. So it's as good an explanation as anybody else's. <laughs> and I think it's completely plausible. And I know you're interested in how we got, I got to be Emily and Lori got to be. Yeah. Was it um, just a preference? What's your name? <laughs> was it just like a, a yeah. you know, like. We just, it was just because we both felt close to either one. Like I've read everything Louisa May Alcott has written with the exception of <laughs> Lori's favorite book. Little Women. With the exception because of Little Women. Many girls in it. I just was not interested in books about that many girls. So I read all the others in the Bayside Queens Public Library. And and I just felt like I felt so close to to um, Emily that it didn't seem hard to kind of get into her head a little bit because it, you know, what we know of her through her poems seems to be there's probably a lot more to know about her that we don't know but it seemed to be the most important part when it comes to writing letters so what we did was we studied up lots of biography whatever was available just to kind of get in the spirit of things we made a timeline of like every event we could find in their lives so that when somebody said something in a letter it really happened at the at time. that time and it does so it's totally authentic in that regard so it was just fun so i think that we start with me me emily see now i think of emily so now you can call the men in the white suits to come <laughs> if i start dressing like her I get worried she wrote and said perhaps a fellow lady writer would help this lady writer who might like to be published and gets a beautiful letter back that was the way that we imagined that it would be plausible that they could have begun a correspondence. They couldn't have been when they were teenagers. They would not have known each other. But by the time Emily writes to Louisa, Louisa had published two stories in the Atlantic Monthly that year. And that was a pinnacle of success at that moment. So we would know for sure that Emily would have read oh, the Atlantic Monthly. And she would have said, there's a woman and she's publishing. So let me write to her. And of course, Louisa writes back in her Louisa fashion all about her. She writes practically a, a fictionalized biography of her family back to, to Emily, who seems a little shell-shocked. <laughs> but, um, but we found, as we said, many correlations between these people these these women and um i what i did was i read everything i could about louise and not only her 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 juvenile work but all of her adult work which is really deep and really fascinating her novels and her short stories and her novella one of her favorites of mine is um a long fatal love chase oh we love that one we love all the gothic ones that. yeah yes yes so um, I read all of those and I read all the biographies and I read the criticisms, but mostly it was Louise's journals and her own letters that helped us most with the timeline. And uh, what else? We came across names that both women knew, Helen Hunt Jackson, for example. Right. So believe it or not, Helen Hunt Jackson as a child, Helen Hunt, grew up in Concord. 
And she was a friend of Emily Dickinson. And in Emily's later years, she really tried to get Emily to publish her poems. And Louisa would have met her later in life when they were both famous authoresses. And they were considered two of the greatest authors of, of, the, of the country. And Louisa did visit Helen Hunt Jackson at her home in Newport, Rhode Island, and knew her well enough that Helen Hunt was going to go with May, who's the Amy character, you know, her sister May, was they were going to travel together to California. That never happened. But these women knew, knew each other very well. Is it possible that Helen Hunt didn't talk to Louisa about Emily? They expect that Helen Hunt was the one who asked Emily to submit to the Mask of Poets, which was a collection of poetry oh, that was so published by that. Thomas Niles, who is Louisa May Alcott's publisher, and everyone in it was anonymous. So they felt that it was Helen Hunt who sent that in, but not in our interpretation. It was Louisa who sent it in right. because it was her publisher. Louisa sent Emily's letter uh, letter in and then wrote on the bottom helen hunt jackson because louisa is a trickster <laughs> <laughs> louisa That's wanted to pull very hard to make it all most plausible mm -hmm. and to really not be a history book so much as the the imagined friendship between two women who had a lot in common and nothing in common mm -hmm. they were as different as night and day but I think they admired, you know, Louisa had everything Emily didn't. Emily could never have been Louisa in 5,000 years. She was a, a retiring kind of hidden soul. And she wasn't the person that we often hear about in her bedroom, you know, in her white nightgown hiding from the world. She just, in my interpretation, she found peace in her room where she could write her songs and she found peace in her garden she had no need to go any further so she she's the fly anything. she's mm -hmm. the fly because she stays on the wall and she observes everything and louisa is the bee because she has to flit around and pollinate and bring things back to emily and we had named this book the bee and the fly before we found the emily dickinson poem that's in the very beginning of the book and I, I think one of, uh, one of the delights of this is that when we were writing letters, we would then find a poem that matched the letter. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't really the opposite. We didn't read a poem and say, let's write a letter about that. We would write the letter and then miraculously, we would find a similar phrase or a similar thought. There were times, there were times when I wrote the letters because I was familiar with not all of them, there's a gazillion of them, but I had my dozens of favorites and there were phrases in them that would come to me while I was writing a letter. So I would stick it in there. And like, if you are a dedicated um, Emily fan, you'll, you'll, you'll see it in the letter and assume that it showed up in a poem around the same time or, you know, later. We just, we were very in character for about two years. Right? We were like, 
Well, it took us it took us over seven years to complete this mm -hmm. from when we started and when it was we, that long. It, it was seven <laughs> from when we started walking on the beach till we oh had this book God. in our hands. I have to take responsibility for about four of those years. <laughs> <laughs> so in the in between, uh, when I was egging Emily on, come on, don't ignore me, please don't ignore me. There's even one letter in here where Louisa gets exasperated and says, are you, are you stopping our correspondence? And that was me writing Just bleeding to over to me. Into the fictional world. <laughs> but I'm the one who writes the short little things every once in a while. <laughs> every so once in a while on a, on a scrap of paper. <laughs> Louisa it, writes big, many books. In between, Jane said to me, you know, you know so much about Louisa May Alcott. You should write a book about her. And I and so in between, I wrote my novel, Only Gossip Prospers, which is about Louisa May Alcott in New York City. That was sort of I wrote it, finished it, published it before we had finished this book. But this book, we said from the beginning, it had to be organic. Yeah. It had to feel right. The letters had to go back and forth, and we couldn't rush. It kind of mimics the way a friendship, right. might, a written friendship. You write a whole lot for a couple of years, and then you know, then you write once in a while, a little later, because life is changing, you're changing. Um, but it it was very slow. <laughs> Lori really did write a whole novel in the middle. <laughs> I did. <laughs> That's how it goes sometimes. I, you know, I understand that. I feel in terms of you asked about rabbit holes that we went down and some research that no one else ever came across. And I think the Mabel Loomis Todd connection between Louisa May Alcott and Emily Dickinson is one of those things, which is just incredible because uh, Mabel Loomis, when she was a child, used to spend summers in Concord, Massachusetts. And she knew, she was like a paisan of the Thoreau family. And she loved Sophia Thoreau, who was uh, Henry's uh, sister. And she would come and spend summers and sort of, she, she wrote a small pamphlet for the Thoreau Society about those summers. And in that pamphlet, she wrote um, about sitting outside in front of the tree in front of Orchard House with Bronson Alcott, waiting for either May or Louisa to come out of the house because they were already very sophisticated women who had been to Europe and had written mm -hmm. books. And she May was an artist. And this young girl would sit hoping to see one of the Alcott sisters. And then lo and behold, she moves to Amherst and becomes Austin's mistress. And the interconnections between the family and et cetera, she winds up with the poems. Now, there is another Emily and Louisa connection that you have in the book here, um, and that's the Norcross cousins. Some of you guys might recognize them as the annoying little cousins in the Dickinson show. Can you tell us a little bit more about these cousins? So these little cousins 
Francis and Louisa were cousins on Emily's mother's side. And they were about 10 years younger than Emily. And she felt sort of maternal to them, but she always kept them in her life. They were some of the people who could come and visit her. They visited Emily even when she and was they a recluse. In they, they lived in Cambridgeport, but late in life, they moved to Concord. They moved to Concord and they attended Bronson Alcott School of Philosophy. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> so that's another amazing connection. So how so could Emily so and Louisa not know they each all knew, other? They had to at least know of one another's existence. Well, you mentioned that they couldn't have been more different, Louisa and, and Emily, where Emily sort of stayed in her home. And although she may have had an independent spirit, she wasn't able to express it against her, her father and her brother. Whereas Louisa was out there. She was such a modern woman. She was she was fighting for suffragist causes, feminist causes, uh, uh, abolitionism, authors rights. She was she was everywhere and she was vocal. And um, she really, really, really used her fame uh, as a pulpit for her causes. Uh, the way that a lot of people today might be using, uh, you know, the internet, she was able to, through her children's stories, really, really teach lessons about uh, a progressive kind of kind of uh, ideas. And I think that the two women were different in that that way too, because the Dickinsons were a little bit on the conservative side, whereas the Alcotts were very, you know, very progressive. I think that Emily, as comes across in the book, I think was outdone by her dad and her brother. That she, it was too hard to to fight so she went inside she looked inside of herself and she saw miracle of miracles the whole world in her garden in her room and in her mind i mean to, we're still reading her poetry and we still think it's this incandescent like amazing poetry that people will be reading forever and so maybe it worked out well that she did that because had she been more out there, maybe she wouldn't have looked inside quite as deeply and expressed herself quite as beautifully as she did. But there's a, obviously there's an element of sadness, but I don't think she was a recluse in the way that people, you know, what you think of when you think of a recluse. I think she just lived in her own little world and it was a, a beautiful world actually. And we are back. Big thanks to Jane and Lori. Jane called her Lori. So I'm going to call her Lori too. Because <laughs> we're, we're, we're friends. Big thanks to Jane and Lori for coming on the show. We had a really awesome, like really long chat. And um, Jane very casually dropped this story about once being out to dinner with Colin Dexter. And I like totally fangirled out because as you know, Hannah, 
<laughs> I am a big fan of Inspector Morse and Endeavor. Nice. And I, I know, I was like, you do call it Dexter? Um, I don't even call it Dexter. Is. Oh, come on. He's the best. Is that like the character or like the He's actor? the writer of the, oh. the, of the Morse books. I'm also working my way through the Morse books, uh, which is sort of like taking me years. I just kind of pick up one a year um, and the short stories, which are kind of funny. Um, but, you know, if you guys like a, a bit of mystery and if you're a fan of the show, you should definitely check those out. They're very charming and a little depressing. That's what that's what I like to hear as like a sub note yeah. and a little depressing. Now, mm-hmm. speaking of mystery, we had a few listeners, including Mary and Adriana, talk about reading or rereading Agatha Christie on our best book thread on Facebook. So Death on the Nile, The 450 from Paddington and Sad Cypress were some of their favourites. I haven't read any Agatha Christie. Those could be good titles to start with. Not a single one, huh? Not a single one. I've watched a lot of Agatha Christie adaptations. Okay. All right. I like the 450 from Paddington quite a bit. Start there, Hannah. Okay. So let's go back to that thread for a minute because that thread on Facebook like hit my wallet really, really hard. Um, Helen recommended The Lighthouse Witches by C.J. Cook, which I immediately Googled and I found this description. Two sisters go missing on a remote Scottish island. 20 years later, one is found, but she is still the same age as when she disappeared. The secrets of witches have reached across the centuries in this chilling gothic thriller. So, of course, I bought that book. (laughs) And the description actually also put me in the mind of another book, which I think I've talked about on the podcast before. Um, It's called Some Kind of Fairy Tale by Graham Joyce. Uh, I love Graham Joyce. Uh, His book, The Silent Land, is a book that brought me to tears. Like, I wept through it. I wept through it so hard that I woke John up at, like, 2 2 a.m. He was like, did someone die? And I was like, no. But also, yes. Spoiler alert. Another book that I purchased was Velvet Was the Night by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. You guys probably know her as the author of Mexican Gothic as well. That book was recommended by Brittany, who described it as a novel about a comic book loving woman working as a secretary in Mexico City in the 1970s who gets caught up with a neighbor's weird disappearance. And I was like, yep, throw that that in the cart as well. That sounds like a book that was written for you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then Krista recommended Mother Thing by Ainsley Hogarth a darkly funny domestic horror novel about a woman who must take drastic measures to save her husband and herself from the vengeful ghost of her mother-in-law. And I was like, yeah, I'm down for that too. Sounds great. (laughs) Now, not all of our book recommendations were spooky. Thank God, guys. What are you doing to me? Uh, We did have some feel-good reads as well. So Kimberly recommended When Women Were Dragons by Kelly Barnhill and also recommended a trilogy by Olivia Atwater that she found at the library, which incorporates Regency romance, humour, magic and the fairy realm. Those books were called Half a Soul, 10,000 Stitches and Long Shadow. She described them as super fun and quick escape reads and saw them pitched as Bridgerton meets Howl's Moving Castle. 
which is a strong pitch. Strong pitch. Leanne recommended a psalm for the wild built and a prayer for the crown shy by Becky Chambers, saying that they were sweet, soul refreshing and charming adventures of a futuristic tea monk and their robot friend. And if you need a break and want a positive vision of what humanity could be, then those are the stories for you. It's funny. We also had those uh, recommended by some other listeners as well on our Instagram thread. Also very popular books. Speaking of feel-good reads, Miriam, Mary, and Ruth all love and recommend Jane of Lantern Hill by Ellen Montgomery. And I meant to read some more Ellen Montgomery this year, but I did not get around to it. So I'm putting this one at the top of my list for next year. Yeah, I feel like everyone should endeavor to read more Ellen Montgomery in a year, right? And speaking of... Miriam said that if you like romance and you're a fan of the Blue Castle, then you might like Mimi Matthews' The Bell of Belgrave Square. Miriam came across the books last year and has been enjoying them and says that you can tell that she would be a fan of some of the authors covered by Bonnets at Dawn. So yeah, a good Bonnets adjacent book. Yeah, I think so. Now for some more romance recommendations. We're going to go ahead and chat with Roseanne Backlund from Love Sweet Arrow. Love Sweet Arrow is the second romance-only bookstore in the States behind The Ripped Bodice, who we had on the show a couple years ago. Um, And Love Sweet Arrow is owned and operated by Roseanne and Marissa Backlund, who are a mother and daughter team, which I think is super cute. Yeah, that's really nice. Lucky for me, it's actually located in the Chicago suburb of Tenley Park. But for those of you outside the city, you can, you know, attend their virtual events and also order online from them at lovesweetarrow.com. If you're ready, you can tell me, you know, about the store and how you got started, like where you got the idea and how exactly you got this going, because this is such a big enterprise. It is a big enterprise. And I'm certainly didn't realize how much work it was when we decided (laughs) to do it which is how everything is so what are you gonna do yeah Um, totally yes (laughs) yeah so marissa and i and and it is this is our story is um we always read romance my mom had Mm -hmm. house she didn't care what we were reading i had it in the house she used to sneak it when she was 11 and finally i said okay well let's do the teen romances and let's save the adult romances till you're a little older um mm-hmm. so when the rip bodice opened we were marissa bought from them all the time we were so excited mm-hmm. that there was a place that sold only romance and after a couple of years we were just laughing the this was like four years ago and the lottery was like a billion dollars. I don't know if you remember that the first time. It got oh, yeah. <laughs> and we were like, if we win the lottery, we're going to open a romance bookstore. Well, we didn't win. <laughs> I was <would> telling <laughs> people, we did win. Please don't think we're rich because we did not win. <laughs> and then as the summer went on, I said, you know what, Marissa, we only go around once. If we're going to do it, let's do it. And so she's like, absolutely. So we spent a good six months researching everything that we thought we would need to know, you know, authors, Mm -hmm. books, publishing houses. And then in February for Valentine's Day, we did a Kickstarter and we were unsuccessful. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So we Kickstarter, you either get it all or you get nothing. So then right. we were like, okay, so we're going to downsize the space we're looking for. It's a much smaller place. It's cozy. 
Um, and we have a back room for events, which fits probably about 30, 30 customers. I shouldn't say women because we have men that come quite often. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we said, okay, by hook or by crook, we're going to do this. We started a Patreon to try to help raise money. We had friends and family helping us. And we opened in June, literally on a dime. We got all of our bookshelves at Ikea. Um, we had mm-hmm. other fun stuff that we added to the store. There's a uh, secondhand store right at the end of their, of our strip mall. So we bought some stuff through them at a really good price. And here we are, three and a half years later. <laughs> Amazing. Yes. <laughs> Maybe this is an easy question. Maybe this is a really hard question. <laughs> but can you recommend some books for us? Um, can be anything. Maybe books that are flying under the radar that you you know you think more people should know about. Okay, so I was looking through the shelves today, and I was trying to think of authors who I think are flying under the radar. And for mm-hmm. me, it's Brenda Jackson. Okay, I think her whole Catalina Cove is a fantastic series she's been writing for a, quite a while um mm-hmm. and we sell some here and there but i really think she's an underrated author for sure excellent okay mm-hmm. what are her books uh historical contemporary um the catalina cove and everything that i see on her on my shelf right now is contemporary what else you got for us well um i'm trying to think of something recently that i read that i really liked and that would be mm-hmm. the holiday trap by roan Parrish. Uh, I saw this the other day. (laughs) Okay, so you like that one? I thought about going back for it. I did. It's kind of like that Jack Black and um, what's her name movie where they'd switch places and they both Mm -hmm. nice little ETA. So yeah, it's uh, it's it's just a cute movie. I'm not pushing a lot of Christmas books, but it is kind of a Christmas book if that makes sense. Okay, place during the holidays. Yeah, and I've recently gotten into Pippa Grant books because she came a few weeks ago and I Mm -hmm. had put a couple of her books anticipation, but she has a huge backlog. And the book that she was, we were really focusing on is her, her first published book from one of the big five. Yes. Oh, cool. It was independently published. So that was kind of fun. It was nice to meet her. She's a sweetheart. Of course, I've not Mm -hmm. met anyone in romance land yet that I cannot say that about. So Mm -hmm. um, she's, she's a, She's got a lot of back, uh, back books. I don't know, back stock, backlist. And so you could take a really deep dive into her. She's contemporary. Everything that I've seen of hers is contemporary. Yeah. And her latest called Irresistible Trouble. And when you look it up later, Cooper on the front cover is sizzling. <laughs> he's, so, <laughs> he's so cute. And she said she met him before. And, and the, Oh, really? The guy, so I don't know. She said what his real life name is. But to me, he's Cooper just on the book. So <laughs> excellent. OK, I'm going to go hunting for this cover. I'm going to put it on the Bonnet to Dawn Instagram page for all of you that are listening. <laughs> yeah. Now, have you got any more recommendations for us? Well, um, I have a, a historical author who has worked with us recently. Well, mm-hmm. I can. I could tell you authors forever, but her name is Jonna McGregor. Have you heard of her? I have heard of her, actually. Hey, so she had a series started last year and her second one came out this, I think it was this spring. And it's called the Widow Rules series. And so there's one more coming out next year and it's these three ladies, historical ladies, who are married to the same guy. And then he died. Oh, Yes. Oh. So it's their stories and what happens after they find each other and the way that they find their own HEA. 
that's a, it's just a really nice series. Yeah. Yes. That sounds like fun. Mm-hmm. I like it. Mm-hmm. A little a little gossipy, a little juicy, a little, yeah, drama. I like <laughs> yeah. a little bit of drama. <laughs> and we are back. Now, one more romance book I'd like to plug is The Accidental Pinup by Danielle Jackson. This is a rivals to lovers romance about a plus size black photographer who unexpectedly becomes the model for a new lingerie brand campaign. Danielle is actually a Chicago area writer and a member of the Bonnets Facebook group. And uh, you can find some signed copies of her book at Love Sweet Arrow. We're going to switch gears a little bit here and talk about some small press books. So the Feminist Press currently have a really beautiful edition of The Living is Easy by Dorothy West, which we highly recommend. You might remember West from season 4.4, episode 9, with Dr. Shireen Sherrard-Johnson. And this is the first novel by West, who was also the author of The Wedding and the youngest writer associated with the Harlem Renaissance. And a book that I haven't read yet, but would love to read is A Horse at Night by Amina Kane, who's the author of Indelicacy, which was one of my best books of 2021. A Horse at Night is her first non-fiction book. It's described as a sustained meditation on writers and their works on the spaces of reading and writing fiction and how these spaces take shape inside a life. It's published by Dorothy, an award-winning feminist press dedicated to works of fiction or near fiction or writing about fiction. And I don't think they ship outside of the US. So, Lauren, I actually do need you to just order this book for me. Thank you. I will get it for you. I um I saw it pop up I saw it pop up on social media. Um definitely follow the Dorothy Project online if you guys are not already. And I was like, oh, I recognize that author name. And then I looked at the description for the book and it's like talking about Virginia Woolf and Mm. other female writers and their writing practices. And I was like, oh, wow, this is like written for Hannah. It's insane. Okay, so yes, I will. I will order that for you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Now, there is a new indie press on the horizon called Old Iron Press which is a woman-owned independent publisher dedicated to retooled classics and new voices, innovating the familiar. And they're so new that they don't have any books available for purchase just yet, but they do have a very cool sensibility. And since they are actively acquiring right now, and we have many you know, listeners who are writers, I just thought it might be cool for them to you know, hear a little bit more about Old Iron Press and maybe get some submissions ready. Definitely. So we're going to talk to the founder and editor, Eliza Tudor, who also has some very excellent recommendations for books for you to buy because you you might need ideas for books to buy. <laughs> Eliza, tell us a little bit more about yourself, because, you know, here's what I'm thinking. I think if you tell us a little bit more about your literary sensibility, then we'll have a better understanding of what Old Iron Press is all about. Okay, let's do it. Um, So I am obsessed with classics. I grew up uh, obsessed with classics. I was kind of born obsessed with classics. Uh, I am named after a character in a book. 
the author Jessamine West. She's uh, kind of an Indiana, California writer. Uh, she wrote a book called Friendly Persuasion. And uh, my father was reading it when my mother was pregnant with me. <laughs> I was named Eliza. After that character, my mom was reading Godfather. So I could have been Sunny. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I was Eliza. Yes. So uh, I've just, I was kind of born this mm-hmm. way. You know, I just, I've loved classics my whole life. Um, I've always been um, nerdy in a very literary way. And uh, I've always been a big reader and a writer. It's just been a part of my DNA. What book as a kid were you obsessed with? I was obsessed, of course, with uh, Little Mm -hmm. Women. Sure. Yes, definitely. And uh, I was obsessed uh, with Anna Green Gables, Mm -hmm. like a lot of others. And uh, I loved Virginia Woolf, quite young. And I loved Jane Austen. Um, I, I read a lot of detective novels mm-hmm. as a kid, too. So Agatha Christie, Dorothy L. Sayers, Marjorie Allingham. Uh, I was a big detective fiction person and still am. So I, um, and I loved... Uh, books like Bedknobs and Broomsticks. In fact, I'm rereading that right now. So yes, um, um, Angela Lansbury, Dame Angela RIP. And uh, so just my heart, I that movie was such uh, was just the ultimate for me. I love, I love everything Angela Lansbury. So uh, Murder, She Wrote, and of course, Bedknobs and Broomsticks. But um, those books growing up, they were just so alive and and they were just a part of my existence. They were very real for me. And I think for a lot of others uh, who grow up that way, that never leaves you. Old Iron Press. Old Iron Press. What is it? What are you doing? What gave you the inspiration to start this? What's happening here? Oh, Lauren. So I am a slow person. I should just mention that. I have a lot of like late bloomer energy going on. I'm kind of late bloomer vibes. Uh, I've been been wanting to do Old Iron Press for ages. And for about 10 years, I've been plotting and planning it. And uh, with my lovely collaborators, we've been working uh, just quietly for a number of years. Um, Alex Mattingly and Drake Preston are my collaborators. And we've just slowly been building this idea of something that we wanted to exist in this world. And uh, there's so many other wonderful presses doing wonderful things that we're such fans of. And we just wanted to start something small that we could continue in a very human pace uh, for a long time. And uh, so Old Iron Press is an indie publisher and we're dedicated to the small, strange and uncategorizable. And we champion retooled classics. So they're classics or literary elements that new life has been been brought into it or people have brought their own energy, their own story to it. Um, We also love uh, underdogs and and disobedient forms, hybrid forms. And I tell you, I just, I I wanted to collaborate basically 
I wanted to collaborate. And I love the origin story of Bonnets of, at Dawn for that reason too. You, you wanted to make something, you know, with someone for others. And I think that that, that very much speaks to what, what we wanted to do with Old Iron. We're a micro press, very small, uh, one to three projects a year. Uh, and uh, really kind of our ethos is uh, small, slow, playful. And that that is um, just something that we love. And it's, it's truly a labor of love, as you understand completely with your work. Um, and it's... Um, just kind of a long time coming. So this is our first year and we launched in May and we launched uh, with an anthology uh, called Playing Authors. And it's using uh, the inspiration of the classic game of authors um, as a starting point. And we kind of wanted to start with that so that uh, if people wanted to kind of know who we were out of the starting gate. This is kind of who we are. We love ephemera. We love um, uh, printing, just generally printing. Uh, and there's a, a lovely tradition too with um, lots of women, particularly. The Yates sisters, mm -hmm. uh, Lolly and Lily mm -hmm. Yates, uh, they are oh, such an inspiration and just, uh, the women's printing um, in London to mm -hmm. the that guild it, it's quite amazing and the the history of it is spectacular and just it's usually in these families and I know that you have talked about this so much these families that, that are making handmade books or they're doing their own press or they're doing their own publishing as a family mm -hmm. I find that really interesting now, like, what kind of submissions would you like to see? Like, what would really, oh, like, get you going? What gets me? So I, I, this is the thing. I'm not an academic. Mm -hmm. I'm not a specialist. I'm very much a fan. Mm -hmm. I'm very much a reader. And I love lots of things. So I uh, love things that are uncategorizable. So I want things that come from a very, uh, fan fan culture or fan based culture uh and also things from the heart quite frankly things that are handmade things that are um that don't really fit <laughs> quite frankly that don't really fit and i uh i love alternate history alternate biography uh, graphic pieces. Um, I also love um, bits and pieces, so scenes. Um, and I love uh, to read a lot of slipstream and hybrid uh, fiction, hybrid hybrid pieces in general. Basically, uncategorizable. Yeah. If you have trouble, if you have trouble shelving it, I want to <laughs> read it. So <laughs> that's great. Can you actually tell us a little bit more about the game of authors, which is what inspired the anthology? I, um, I find the history of the game really interesting because it was developed in New England. And just strangely enough, like this episode is sort of about connecting the dots between some of those East Coast writers. Everyone knew each other. Everyone was talking about each other. Everyone was like writing about each other and apparently making games about each other. 
So it had a weird, it has a weird history. Mm -hmm. So Anne Abbott was originally thought of as the, um, the creator of the author's game. And Anne Abbott was uh, a poet. She, um, oh golly, she did all sorts of things. She was a game designer and she, um, also gave Hawthorne a very bad review. In fact, what does he call her? <laughs> he calls her something better. Oh, he said um, that she's part of the damned mob of scribbling oh, women. he said that so, about her. Okay, gotcha. I think so, yes, yes. So she wrote a very disapproving review of Hawthorne. So anyway, but so Anne Abbott, though, it was found, uh, found that Anne Abbott was not the original creator. And uh, uh, this all came to light around 1992, which is probably around the time that you guys were born. I mean, this is... I'm a little older than that, but I won't say. <laughs> not much, yes. But, um, but anyway, so I wanted to read you this because I thought it was interesting and I wanted to share this with you in particular. So um, Whipple and Smith were the uh, creators of the game and it all started in Salem, Massachusetts. And this wonderful, there's a wonderful uh, uh, article about it that, that he calls it the city of witches. But it, they say that they didn't, it didn't come from Ann Abbott. It came from a coterie of young ladies. And there's this kind of mystery. And I, I think that is really part of why I wanted to do this project first, because that, that idea of, um, of mystery. And of course, that idea of, you know, for so many years, what's that Virginia Woolf quote about the, the anonymous, yeah. but a coterie of young ladies came up with a game of authors. So I, I mean, it was years and years that I've been thinking about this. And I kept researching who was in Salem at that mm -hmm. time, who was studying there, who was teaching there, because there's something about the game of authors itself that speaks a lot to teaching. It, it, you know, you're learning uh, the name of the, the name of the author, you're learning the title, mm -hmm. you're learning what they look like. And it was around the time that your uh, that I that I found your podcast that I began reading about um, Charlotte Fortin Grimke, and Fortin Grimke was in Salem at that time, and I have this just kind of alternate history going on in my head. What if Charlotte Fortin Grimke was one of those coterie of young ladies that came up with authors? I mean, she was very because literary. Very literary. And the first game of authors, all of her favorites, yep. Yep. you know, she had Dickens, Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Um, so it, it's just, uh, it's Charlotte Bronte. And, oh, so I kept thinking, oh, wouldn't this be amazing if somebody that was listening or someone that was reading this or submitting to, to the press if they would think about who were these coterie of young yeah. ladies that came up with this game, because it, it's quite, it's quite interesting. And that, I think that speaks a lot to what our interest is too, as publishers, we want to know those stories that maybe haven't been told mm -hmm. or told in a new way. Yeah. I want to know 
And it doesn't have to be a classic. It could be anything. But like, what did you read this year that you loved? Oh, good question. So I have lots to lots to show you. So I love, um, I'll start with this. Um, and this is kind of a chivalry, Neil Gaiman. God, this one missed yes. me. I, I'm like, what is this? Yes. So it is fantastic. And the, um, and I apologize. I'm going to, I'm going to struggle with all names and pronunciation right now, but I think the, um, Colleen Doran, I don't know if I'm pronouncing the name right, but did the adaptation, the art and the, um, illuminated manuscript lettering Mm -hmm. and the lettering, uh, Todd Klein, but it's dark horse books, chivalry, and it's delightful. And it was published um, March 2022, so chivalry. And then I have a couple other books. Again, I want to repeat that I'm rereading Ben Ops and Broomsticks, and mm-hmm. I can't say enough how much I love it. So I had that one that I pulled. Mary Norton, who did The Borrowers, wrote the book, and it is delightful as well. And then um, Yoko Tawadas, I think I'm scattered all over the earth that is another book that i read this year for people that love uh wizard of oz oh cool this this book is spectacular and it um so it is uh talking a lot about invented language language um home uh and the aspects of kind of who we are and who we connect to Mm -hmm. in this world I loved this. And then I have been rereading um, the Alice B. Toklas cookbook. And I've got the MFK Fisher forward one. I've been rereading that. And then the Myra Kalman Gertrude Stein autobiography. Oh, wow. That's a hefty one, too. I know it is. It, it's so beautiful. It's just lovely. And it's, um, it's just designed so beautifully. And of course, I love everything that um, Myra Kalman. Did. So those are kind of some of the books that I've been reading that I've really loved this year. Um, and then of course, you know, I, <laughs> I'm going constantly back to people that I loved, you know, reading their work in the past. And um I have to say, I'm so grateful for Jenny Batchelor's work. You did an interview with Jenny Batchelor, and I've been reading the the Jane Austen stitching uh, one, oh, yeah, yeah, and some, some of the other books. But um, but those are just a few. <laughs> and we are back. Sadly, that is all we have time for today, but don't worry, we're coming back next week with even more book recommendations and two very special guests. Returning guests, fan favorites. Um, So big thanks to all of our interviewees for today. It was a real pleasure talking to all of you. You can find Jane and Lorraine's book, The Bee and the Fly on clashbooks.com. Highly recommend their social media, it's great. Also be sure to visit Love Sweet Arrow dot com and oldironpress.com and you can find links to all of their socials and everything from there and where can you find bonnets at dawn on the socials hannah you can find us as always on instagram and twitter at bonnets at dawn on facebook by searching for bonnets at dawn and you can buy our book why she wrote on chroniclebooks.com or wherever you get your usual literary fix
It's also available in Spanish, FYI, from RBA Libros. Oh, true story. 